I'm just going to get to it. Sound good? All right. All right. Uh, Father, right now, Lord, your word is powerful. And when we begin to read it, Lord, we know that it does more than just uh, make sounds out of our mouth, Lord. It goes into our heart. It begins to shape us and change us, God. It begins to challenge us and provoke us, God. Lord, I pray that the things that are said and the word that we cover will be something that not only ministers to us, but ministers to you too, God. Lord, it'll be as if we are saying, we see you. We see you, God. Father, we love you this morning. May your name be exalted and your word be exalted this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So Paul wrote this letter sometime during his first imprisonment in Rome. Uh, he, he uh, uh, you know, a lot of letters he sent out, uh, but we believe that this letter was sent while during his first imprisonment. And while we won't kind of get into it today, he is writing them over the concern of some of the teaching and the doctrinal uh, and theological issues that they uh, that he had heard they were having there. He had heard good things, and he's going to talk about those things, but he also heard some issues that he wanted to make sure stood corrected. He felt <clears throat> that if some of these things kept being taught, if some of these things were continuing to be preached, that it, that it would be dangerous to the believers there. It may cause them to stumble. I think it's interesting, and in, in just me, that Paul is in prison still thinking about others. Like, hey, it could be bad for you. Paul, bro, it's bad for you. You know, uh, I don't know if you understand your situation, but you're in a really even worse situation than we are. You're worried about us having a bad teacher. Uh, you're in prison, Paul. I'm pretty sure it's bad there. I don't know, but I've heard that Roman prison is not good. I saw how they treated Jesus. I can't imagine they treated Paul much better. I'm just saying. Uh, he's in prison. But really, this is the context of the letter. It is this. Paul is writing from prison, concerned about others. It's interesting because it'll be the very thing that ties him or unites him with the Colossian church, right? So it begins with the author really deep in affection, and he's genuinely concerned over the thought that someone has led them astray in the faith. And so he just wants to correct them, and he, and he, and he wants to do it in a way that it will appeal to them in love. And that's a big, that's a big thing. Uh, um, I could really hammer, uh, just, I could have stopped right here, and we really talk about correcting in love. Uh, because what the Colossians, what the letter is, is a giant correction done in love. And so as we begin to read through this process, I, I really want us to like take note that, that every time we come across a teaching like we're going to have today, that the reason he's bringing this thing up is because he's driving to correcting them. But this is how you correct. You don't ever correct. Like correction is never like uh, where, where, especially when it's somebody else. You know, it's different when you're, when you're your own kid, things like that, you're a little different. But when you're correcting somebody else that's not your kid, not your, you know, and you're trying to help lead them and stuff, you never just go, hey, you know you're doing that wrong, right? Like, that's never going to help, like, ever. I remember a guy who wanting to be my, you know, friend, and, and he's been as much in the past, but I remember one time he came up to me and when we were starting Mosaic, and he's like, yeah, you're two, 242 or whatever it was. And I was like, what is that? He goes, that's the number of churches, and you're number 242 in this area. And I was like, that's awesome. Way to get me on your side. Like, way to make me your best friend. You know, like, uh, that is not how you correct people. That is not the things you say. And, right, and, then, and then cloak yourself in Christianity. Well, I'm a Christian. I'm just trying to help you. Uh, not like that. I mean, is that, that wasn't very loving, right? 
could have sat with me, could have sat down, could have invited me to lunch, could have said, hey, you know, man, you ever looked around and just seen what you, I mean, like, could have really appealed to me in a different way, right? That, is he wrong? No. What he was saying is not wrong. We might be that. That's, that's fine. That well, The truth he's saying is truth. Well, it's not my problem if the truth hurts you. No, that's true. Uh, Paul's going to get to that truth, but watch how he walks into it. He walks into it in love. He appeals to them in love. He appeals to them to say, look, I'm your friend, and let me remind you how I'm your friend. Let me show you the things that I see in you that are awesome, right? He doesn't, like, just come out, right? It's like, you know, we want to be smart about how we handle correction, and and, and this letter is really a a very good uh, testimony to what Paul can do when it comes to correction. So I'm going to break these things down in sections. We won't get through the whole chapter it's I, hopefully it won't be like uh, Mark where we just like stopping and it took a year. I don't think it's going to take that long. It's a short book, but uh, um, I, I do want to keep everything in context. So sometimes we'll stop and it'll only be a few scriptures that we'll really deal with because he's maybe packing something in that really needs to be expounded on so that we understand what he's saying. Uh, and then yet some parts might be uh, uh, giant, and we're just covering a vast amount of scripture because we're trying to keep things in context. You know, we there's no point preaching out of scripture. You know, there are many people today that use certain scriptures, but if you read before it and you read after it, I, one of my uh, favorite ones was um, I was watching a church uh, that should have gone through correction. It didn't, but you get a lot of Pentecostal preachers that always like preaching good stuff, you know, like hoorah messages. And what I mean by that is just like saying things like uh, that are easy to get amens, right? And one of these things is during this time, this I remember this preacher come up and he was preaching out of Jeremiah, and he said this uh, thing like, oh, well, God wants to give you shepherds after his own heart. And he quoted from Jeremiah, and I was like, yeah, that's awesome. Have you read the two scriptures before it? It says, once you repent. (laughs) It's funny how we, now that changes that (laughs) pastors after God's own heart, doesn't it? Once you repent, God will do that. Once you repent, then God can do some things. But it's funny how if we just remove a couple of scriptures and we don't teach anything in context, we can make scripture be whatever we want it to be. Don't, Don't believe me. Ask the devil when he was talking to Jesus. They quoted scripture perfect, but he used it out of context. That's devilish. That's devilish, even when pastors use it just for a big hoorah. Because I know what they were trying to do. They were trying to just make us feel better. But, the, but that's not going to make us feel better if that's out of context, right? I mean, that's just the truth. What, and what should have been said, he, he was on to something. He should have just quoted the whole thing is what he should have quoted, right? It could have led that whole church into a repentance, and it really could have been something different. All right, so Paul gives his customary greeting. We're going to start in chapter 1. Very first couple of scriptures, we'll start there. I'm not going to hang out a whole lot there, but there are some things there I do like. Colossians chapter 1, verses 1 through 2. Say amen if you're there. I love it. This letter is from Paul, chosen by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. And from our brother Timothy, we are writing to God's holy people in the city of Colossus who are faithful brothers and sisters in Christ. May God our Father give you grace and peace. So let's stop just real quick. So as the letter states, it's from Paul, but it's also from Timothy. All right? So Timothy is the young pastor that Paul supplanted in Ephesus. If you remember when we did our study through Ephesus, that's where Timothy is. Like That's like the hardest place to be, right? If you don't believe me, go look at what's in the last chapter of Ephesians. It's all spiritual warfare. I'm going to take my youngest pastor and put him in the most spiritually demonic place. Good job there, buddy. 
Not only that, I'm going to get him some angry elders so that I have to remind the church once in a while and come around and defend Timothy because the older people don't like the younger pastor, right? I mean, so there's like Timothy's a pretty hardcore guy, right? Uh, uh, but it also is kind of neat, man. This means that uh, we have not only our evangelist, Paul, praying for another church, but also pastors praying for other churches, Two different missions. Paul's mission is not to pastor the church. He doesn't pastor a church at all. He left Timothy to do that. But we see two different ministry offices here. The evangelist or the missionary, whatever you want to call him, he's really the evangelist, right? And you see the pastor. Both of them have concerns for this church. Both of them are praying for the well-being of another church, and we should all aspire to be this way. We should. We should all aspire to be this way in prayer for other pastors and other churches. The longer I stay in one place, the more this comes back to me. But the longer I'm here, I've been here 10 years now, this kind of stuff slaps me in the face. And allow me a little grace here. I'm going to be a little honest uh, uh, this morning with a story that's uh, just recent uh, for me. Uh, there is this family that Joy and I, I'm going to read it probably more than I say it because if I speak off the cuff, I don't want to say names. I just want to keep that kind of an anonymous thing. There's this family that Joy and I spent a great deal of time with while they were, uh, they were young. Uh, uh, they had three kids, um, husband-wife thing, divorce thing, that whole thing. Um, and as they got older, uh, the kids got older, we had them in youth, and their mother died of cancer in her 30s. That's devastating. When you're little, you don't know, you know. You're just little. And uh, it, it, was, it was hard, right? Joy and I helped all we could. The older sibling kind of walked away from the church, began to explore er, uh, everything that had been kept away from her while her mother was alive, uh, even for a season, homosexuality. And during that time, Joy and I continued to just pour ourselves into the lives of the other siblings, the one that would open up and, and just kind of share with us. And we even invited uh, them into our homes, and we shared Christmases together and just invested a lot of time. And we just continued to believe and pray. And, uh, this has gone on for years. We'd been praying for years. Uh, and, uh, you know, every time we saw the older sibling, we'd hug. Oh, it's all this reunion type stuff is all good, right? Uh, well, in the past year or so, there's been a radical shift in the older sibling. And they've left that homosexual lifestyle, and they've renewed their walk with Jesus. And I bring it up because I recently saw a local church. They're getting ready to video this testimony and kind of show the work that God's doing in their church, so to speak. But here's where I want to be honest. It kind of rubs me raw. <laughs> this is being honest, okay? Um, it reminded me of what's happening right, you know, right now at my house. So we have this small garden in the back. Some of you have seen it, right? We're growing some tomatoes. Joy's like super happy, right? They're starting to produce. They got little green tomatoes on them, right? And there are a few really good ones on there. And uh, she came out the other day. She's like, something ate my tomatoes. Something came in the night and has been eating the tomatoes right off the vine. And she's so angry. She's done all that work of going out there every day and watering that. She's the one that dug it in and put it in the ground, put the little things that go around it so it can grow straight. She's invested all that time and energy, all that to grow the fruit, right, for someone else to enjoy it. Now you understand why I'm kind of rubber all a bit. Joy and I invested a lot of hours into the ministry of many students and adults in this city. We, we give our hearts to it everything we can. 
we're deeply invested into the spiritual success of other people, plain and simple. We tilled the ground, we've planted, we've seeded, we've watered the seed, and we watched as other people harvest. It's frustrating. But disappointing? No, it's not. Jesus said it would be that way, right? In John 4, he says, you know the saying, one plants and another harvests, and it's true. I sent you to harvest where you didn't plant and others had already done the work, and now you will get to gather the harvest. So just like that, it was the will of God for the other church to come and harvest it. Just like that, it, it, it was the will of God for it to be that way. Our job for Joy and I was to plant the seed. Our job was to water it. That was our job. It was the other church's job to come in and get to the, the opportunity or really the, the awesome privilege it is to just harvest somebody else's work. And God says that's part of it. There's such a humility in it. I'm not going to be, uh, I can't lie about that, right? But we both had our part. We both had our part. In this way, we get to be like Paul and Timothy, Christians that are able to pray and enjoy the success of other Christians. Now, that's not easy. And when I saw it, I was like, oh, my gosh, he's going to sell it like it was all him. <laughs> that's my, that's, can I say that was my immediate? That's just being real and raw with you, all right? But then I'm quoting scripture that's showing me the error of my own voice, right? That I should be humbled that I got a part in the work at all, right? And be so happy and rejoice that someone's been liberated from homosexuality. And I should shout to the rooftops with the church. And I want to join the church in shouting the praise and the glory of God that he has harvested the seed. Amen? Now let's get to the meat of our text. That wasn't even what I was going to preach about, but I had to. It was right there in the beginning with Paul and Timothy, the pastor and the evangelist, teaming up to, to cheer on other churches. Colossians chapter 1, verse 3. We're going to run to 14. We always pray for you, and we give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, for we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and your love for all of God's people, which come from your confident hope of what God has reserved for you in heaven. You've had this expectation ever since you first heard the truth of the good news. The same good news that came to you is going out all over the world. It's bearing fruit everywhere by changing lives. Just as it changed your lives from the day you first heard and understood the truth about God's wonderful grace. You learned about the good news from Epaphras, our beloved co-worker. He is Christ's faithful servant and he is helping us on your behalf. He has told us about the love for others that the Holy Spirit has given you. So we've not stopped praying for you since we first heard about you. We ask God to give you complete knowledge of his will and to give you spiritual wisdom and understanding. Then the way you live will always honor and please the Lord, and your lives will produce every kind of fruit. All the while, you will grow as you learn to know God better and better. We also pray that you will be strengthened with all his glorious power so that you will have the endurance and patience you need. May you be filled with joy, always thanking the Father. He has enabled you to share in the inheritance that belongs to his people who live in the light. For he has rescued us from the kingdom of darkness and has transferred us into the kingdom of his dear son who purchased our freedom and forgave our sins. That's a wonderful passage, isn't it? Right off the cuff, we see now why Paul and Timothy are able to speak as they are, calling them brothers and sisters in their greeting. 
They're putting them on equal ground with them. Why? Because they are always praying for them. That's huge. I've heard it said that we never gossip about people we pray for, and we never pray for people we gossip about. That may be true. Here we know that Paul and Timothy have adjusted their attitude towards the Colossians on their knees. Why do they feel such a love or an an extreme love towards them and call them, man, you're my brothers and you're my sisters. Why? Because I pray for them. Changes my heart, how I look at people. When I pray for people, my heart is what changes. Rarely is it somebody else that changes when I pray. It's my heart. My heart begins to change. I begin to have a love for them and see them the way Jesus does. Make me able to tolerate maybe things I didn't tolerate before. But this is what puts them on equal ground. This is why he says, my brothers, my sisters. What he's saying is my co-partners in the faith. Paul and Timothy have adjusted their attitude on their knees. Everything they are about to say stems now. Because they said, we're always praying for you, right? So everything they say now stems from their time alone. Through intimacy with Jesus now, we are now approaching you. That's like literally what he's saying as he's starting out. We're always praying for you, which means that through my intimacy with Jesus, I'm always talking about you with Jesus. I have a love for you, a passion for you, a growing uh, 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 desire to see you succeed. In my intimate time, he's saying, In my quiet time, I spend my quiet time talking about you with Jesus. Man, nothing says you love somebody more than that. It makes makes Paul and Timothy, it changes their heart. Now, we know this is a letter that is eventually going to work at correcting them, but we never start out a conversation with, let me tell you where you're wrong, right? I mean, we just don't do that. So I'm sure some of you have come across some bad leadership before where this has kind of been an issue, but Paul and Timothy are trying to correct in love. Thus, they begin by discussing what? The good things that they've heard and how it lines up with their prayers, right? This is, this is how it begins. I'm not going to just start off by telling you, okay, uh, hey, brothers and sisters, let me tell you where you're wrong. That doesn't start that way. No, no, no. He says, let me, let me first give you all the praise and glory for the things God is doing. I see the things that God is in the midst of you, and I want to tell you that, Right? Paul says, we've heard of your faith in Christ and your love for all of God's people, which comes from your confident hope of what God has reserved for you in heaven. Now, this is the result of the gospel, right? The seed of the gospel has been planted there. It starts with the realization that your sins are forgiven, right? And when you come to that understanding, when that clicks, right, you get salvation. You get what God is offering you. And the combination of your sins forgiven and an eternal reward are a wake-up call to what grace is doing in your life. It creates change. It creates change in you, right? It's what transforms your life into this new creation, how you respond to grace. Listen, you know, a lot of people, there's so much struggle, I think, between the people who are like, God loves us just like we are, and I get that, and he loves us, and he gives us grace for all the things we do, and he loves us while we're yet sinners. I know, but God still asks us to repent. Jesus himself asked us to repent, which means to turn around, right? Turn away from the things we were doing, right? Lives change, lives transform. It talks about it over and over. Yes, God still loves the sinner. God gives grace to the sinner, but God also wants you to change like, I, I love, I, I think it was uh, Matt Chandler, I think it first said it. God does, uh, when you come just as you are, but you don't get to stay the same. 
you know? And it's not like prerequisite, hey, if you change, that makes you more saved. No, no, no. You were saved once you said yes, but that, that realization makes your life change. What happens is, is when we don't see your life being transformed or being renewed in Christ, and we don't see that physical transformation in you, we start to question whether you actually, look, saying the words does not mean you're saved. That's just the truth. We equate life change, or, or we equate salvation, or seeing the evidence of salvation to life change. And the, and the irony is, a lot of people, well, you know, that doesn't mean I'm saved. Truth, there are good people who are not saved. That's true, too. Like, at the end, yes, only, only individual will ever know. You know, there are some people, I'm sure that they're in church and they're faking it. And on the, on the day that it comes, when the rapture comes, it'll be a well-known who was faking it. Boy, God help the preachers. But this is how we equate that. And Paul says it. He sees it, right? He sees this change. The new creation, it steps out of its self-absorbed shell, and it begins to reveal its grace in Christ by what? By loving others. That's what happens. All of a sudden, you'll get a general love for everybody. I remember when I, like, like I said the words for a long time, and I went to church for a long time. That's been out. I've, I've been very honest about that. But, the, but one of the, the greatest things that happened, when I really... Maybe just it clicked on me. It was the Holy Spirit, um, and, it, and, and God did some significant rewiring in my brain. I, I really did come to the place where I, I, everybody has to know this. And what that is, that desire to want everybody to know Jesus is called loving others. That is definitely a sign that you've been saved. There's no way to shake that. I'm always surprised. Like, I'll know when you're saved when you want to tell all your friends. Because that's the first thing I did. And you know what? When I meet people who are like, get saved, saved, I say, save, save. You know, like, like there was the saved I was when I just said the words and didn't tell any of my friends. And then there was the saved I was when I thought they were all going to die and go to hell and I had to tell them. Even if it mean they weren't my friends anymore. I grew up with them my whole life. It's hard for me to think that we couldn't be friends. Now, the great thing for me is that they love me anyway. And they just thought, well, you're just going crazy. You're just crazy over this girl, Jim. And once this girl goes, you'll be done. But it didn't go that way. Jesus changed my life. And you know what they've come to do is just respect me. Because I've stayed true to the man that God changed me into. They see it. They saw the difference. My brother says it all the time. He goes, my middle brother, John. I should call him my little brother. He's taller than me. Uh, he always says it all the time. He says, I knew what you were. <laughs> You're a far cry from that, and because uh, I terrorized him as a kid, and God changed me. Right? This is this is the work. This is Christ living in us. This is all tied together. It's all working in unison. So much so that by verse six, Paul tells them, "This same good news, the one that's affected you, the one that when you heard it, it changed your life and it made you started loving other people and wanting to do things for them, like uh, having services on Easter and." Uh, the wind destroying all the financial stuff that you've bought in music equipment, you know, and all this stuff that you've paid money for just so you can get some people out there to hear the gospel, right? The reason that's in you, right? This same good news is going out all over the world. It's everywhere. In this context, we see that the fruit of the gospel or the good news is that lives have been changed. So we know that the gospel is going out when we see lives changed. That's the only way we can tell. The, ch the, 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 the change came or the fruit became visibly evident the minute you heard or understood really is the key of God's grace. 
And let's stop here. I just want to sit on this for a few seconds longer. There's this swinging pendulum that, that happens in the gospel when it comes to salvation and transformation. While it may seem paradoxical, but it's not, uh, uh, it's, it's not contrary to one another, the good news of the gospel is that salvation, yes, it has come for all. God, yes, accepts you just like you are as a sinner, but he also asks that you acknowledge that and repent. You have to repent. He doesn't let you stay a sinner. Nobody gets to just stay that. This is probably what drives me nuts amongst a lot of people who call themselves Christians. Like, I can't tell. I, can't, I see that you go to church on, on Sunday and Wednesday, but you look like every other heathen every other day of the week. I'm just saying, why would anybody come to church if they don't have to change anything of what they are? We offer this. We tell people we offer such, we offer such a great gift. Good news, forgiveness of sins. Forgiveness of sins sounds like I can just keep on sinning and just come to church, and then at least everybody quit talking about me. I'm, I'm just being honest. It's like the stuff we say. We don't say this normally from the pulpit. We say this among circles. But it's the truth, right? We all know it. This forgiveness is called grace because you've done nothing to deserve forgiveness for being a sinner. That should change you. The fact that Jesus offers it in your condition is what should overwhelm you. I always say I can tell the measure of a person's love for Jesus all dependent upon how much they actually understand themselves. How much you think of yourself a sinner will totally depend on how much you serve Jesus. That is an equation. You can work that out. If you, if you are madly in love with Jesus, you make sure you, the doors are open every time. Usually that's a person who understands how awful they really are. They probably have a secret fight inside of them that very few ever know. Can I tell you, I remember hearing a pastor say, I think some pastors are only saved because that's the only way Jesus could keep them saved. Can I, I feel like that all the time. I tell Joy all the time, man, I, I'm, I'm getting in sheerly by the grace of God. I feel like my whole past is still so dark and gloomy that I'll never escape underneath that thing at times. Now, I know that's not true. Jesus has forgiven it. He's not even going to see it at all, and he's forgiven it. But I still remember it, you know, and I have this constant thinking of myself, like, man, of all the bad things, and I'm still overwhelmed that Jesus has saved me. And because of that being overwhelmed, I can't stop what telling people about Jesus. I can't stop studying the Word of God. I can't stop praying. I can't stop caring for other people. I can't stop wanting churches to succeed. I want to see revival in Marble Falls, not so I could see re- revival and just be some kind of vainglory in and of myself. No, because I want to see people know the God that I know, that you can have this dark and gloomy past just like me and yet still find hope and salvation in the light. Your life can still turn out totally the opposite than you think it's going to turn out. Man, the fact, I always thought I'm going to die somewhere in my 20s. And I came really close a lot, more than most people probably. So I had no, I had no plan for anything in my 30s. The irony is it would, take, it would take into my 30s before I even feel like the purpose of God came upon me, like what I'm supposed to do in life. And I'm going to tell you, never in my, a million years would I have thought, if you'd have asked me what my purpose was at 13 14, it wouldn't have been, I want to grow up and serve people the rest of my life. How many kids grow up with, like, that's their thought? I just want to grow up and serve people the rest of my life and just, like, I, I love the, the uh, in Acts, I just want to wait tables the rest of my life. That's enough. I just want to give myself to people and serve them in a way that will help their life. Right? Nowhere was I anywhere close to that at 12, 13, 14, 15, 20. Nowhere. Gospel does that. The way, the way you see it, right? And this overwhelming appreciation shifts your life. 
It shifts your life. It sticks you around other people, first of all, that are like-minded. That's why you end up in church. Because you're going to find out real friends that any other, everybody else will just, they ain't going to want to be around you. You know? This is where, I was asked, well, how'd you end up in the Pentecostal church not going to church at all? Well, because they're the only one crazy enough to take me, first of all. I don't see too many radicals just shoving out the Methodist and Baptist churches. I, I'm just saying, like, those guys are like, oh, yeah, but we'll just tell Jesus about, you know, in church. And they're not, like, super evangelistic. Not that there's not some. There are. But, but there's a lot that are not. Like, most of the ones I experienced, they're not very evangelistic. They're not very, like, go out and want to tell people about Jesus. Well, if that would have been, if, man, you know why I'm Pentecostal? Because it wasn't a Baptist that came and saved me. No Baptist would be where I go. Truth. Pentecostals are nuts. I'm telling you, they're crazy. They'll go anywhere. They do anything. They believe God could do more for them. I mean, I used to say that it's like a, when I, I watched it at a service one time, like I was like, oh, the worship's getting so good. It's about to be a flood, right? I mean, it's the Holy Spirit's about to come in. We're at this baptism. Like, oh, my gosh. And they're, they're like wanting it to happen, right? And then right when I think it's about to happen, like for us as Pentecostals, we'd have been like, you'd have had somebody screaming already. We would have had somebody speaking in tongues out loud by that time, right? Nope. They shut the lights on. Everybody sat down. I was like, oh. And, and this is what I felt from that day forward. This is like the only way I can describe that is, so here's the Jordan. And there are those happy with just sitting at the banks. And that's all they need. That's all they need. And then there's us. Uh-uh. I'm about to cannonball up in this joker. That's like literally the Pentecostal faith, it seems like at times. I'm about, uh-uh, it's not enough. I want more. I want more. I want more. I'm going to go till I can't even swim anymore. Drown me in this stuff, God. You know? And, and, and literally, that's the shift, right? This overwhelming appreciation. Pentecostals, I say they have it more than bad because I've met some Baptist guys that are so on fire that they amaze me. They're my brothers, man. Uh, uh, Jason Cullison is one of them. He shares my, I let him share my pulpit because that guy is on fire for Jesus. Right? There are some guys that are. He likes to think of himself as a Baptocostal, I think, at times. So, but this is the shift that is happening in the Colossians church. I say all that to give you, the, you know, uh, I think it was Brendan Manning says, sometimes we have to speak in extremes so you get the idea. Right? I mean, and there, this is the Colossian church. Paul sees it. You guys are on fire. The way you love others, the things that you're doing to help people, the, the things that you're giving to make sure that the poor get something to eat, the way you're taking care of widows and orphans, the things that you're, you're, you're out there helping people with their household stuff, you are doing so much. I can see your love for others. Your reputation for how you love your community is well known. And we know that comes from your love for God. Because how else does it, where else did that come from, Right? And so this is the thing they see, right? They see their love for God, and they see their love for others. I mean, it's like saying, listen, I, let me see where, you, you know, you used to say that, let me see where you put your money at, and I'll tell you the thing that you worship, right? Well, they can see it in Colossians. It's in other people. It's in others. And that's a big deal because this is the same subject that's like brought up around verse 8. Paul says that he's heard from another coworker in the faith, right? In the faith, right? Epaphras about how much the Holy Spirit has given them this love towards others, right? By verse 9, Paul says that's why they're praying even more for them because they're wishing there was more churches like them. Man, I wish there were more churches who did stuff for people like you do stuff for people. Man, we can see the evident working of God in you, right? They've inspired Paul to even greater prayer at this point. That's what he's saying. And Paul is cheerleading them. Good job. 
good job. You're doing an excellent job. And they look up to Paul because they've heard of him, right? They're looking up to him. They know, man. Paul's been around. He's planted these churches. They know him. And so they're like, yeah, man, thank you. I mean, he's cheerleading. He's, man, what wonderful love you have. Wonderful love, right? Paul cheers them on saying that because they've shown such a great love and their response to grace is so great, he wishes that even more spiritual wisdom and understanding is upon them. May they grow even greater in knowledge of who God is. And by verse 11, Paul is praying that they have the strength and endurance to last forever. Now, for a correction, this sounds awesome. Can I tell you, if I started out the conversation with you and I wanted to correct you and I spent the first whole page of, you know, reading a certain, like first 10, 15 minutes talking about how awesome you are, you may be more likely to hear from me. And here's where we stand or fall, right? Are we changed when it comes to when we look at this? When we, are, are we like the Colossians, right? Have, we, have our lives been transformed by the Gospels, by the good news? Are we walking and functioning in that transformation? These become very responsible questions you have to ask. These are the things he's praising them for. If Paul's cheerleading this, this must be the, what you need to be as a church, right, as a church body. How much you love others becomes the measure of how much you love God. He automatically, I know you love God because I can see how much you love his children. Right? Same goes for us, right? When just in the physical realm. Man, you know, uh, when you love somebody's kids, you're loving the parents, man. They love you. When you love their kids, they love you. It starts with loving others. How much we love others becomes the measure. And these two are linked together. You cannot place these apart. When Jesus was asked what was the most important commandment, y'all know this one? The most important thing we should be obedient to. Matthew 22, he says, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. This is the first and the greatest commandment. A second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. This entire law and all the demands of the prophets are based on these two commandments. That's the two we have to get right. All of the else, everything else will fall into place when we get these two right. From the mouth of God is so. These two are irreversibly linked. You don't get to love God and not like the church. Sorry. There are a ton of people who love to say that too. Well, I love Jesus. I just don't like the church. <sighs> Y'all heard me say this before, but it's like saying I like the guy, but I hate his wife. I'm going to tell you right now, you hate my wife, you hate me. I probably do not like you either. You try to, especially if you tell me you don't like my wife. I just don't see how that's possible. The church is us. The church is us. Of course we're not perfect. Neither are you. Who says stuff like that to me? Like, I, I always think that's such a bizarre thing to say. These things are linked. It's just the way it is, right? We can't, the, the, listen, this wrong and the rest are meaningless. So today's takeaway, and then we're going we're gonna to pray, and we're going to have a little worship time. And It's really this. These are two things I, I want us to start doing. Two things I want to start doing as I came across these. these are, like I said, I'm kind of taking you through my journal. These are the things God is pouring out into me, right? That's why I bring up stuff and trying to just be raw, honest with you about I'm just a man like anybody else. I struggle with the same struggles you struggle with. Same ones. There's no pastor supreme here. Like I, I remember uh, Derwood DeBose, uh, an Assembly of God preacher one time, who was the superintendent of the North Texas District, having to be honest about, and I thought it was his best sermon I'd ever heard. Maybe this is why I remember it, because I've never, I don't hear, I'm not used to hearing a ton of honesty and personal stuff from pastors a lot. He, he mentioned how when he was the superintendent and he had cancer, 
he was struggling really bad in depression because he didn't believe God was going to heal him. And he goes, I'm the superintendent of the North Texas district. What that means for you to don't know, I'm, he goes, I'm in charge of 544 churches. I am over all these pastors. I am the pastor of the pastors. And if I don't have faith, what's that say for everybody else underneath me? That was probably one of the most honest things I've ever heard him say. And it's made me really love him and love his ministry because he was honest enough to, to say that. Because a lot of guys wouldn't admit it. I mentioned the things I say to you today because these are the things where God's taking me. And in my journey, you know, we, we shared along the way by the power of our testimony, right? We were overcomers. So these are how I let these things out. But listen, I want to begin to pray. Number one, I want to begin to pray for other pastors and churches here locally. And even others that are dear to you. If you got other churches, like for right now, one of the things I want to pray for this morning is my friend Stephen McKnight. I think I can say this now because he's there this weekend uh, in Terrell being voted on. And uh, uh, I don't know how that's going to go. My guess is they're going to, he's like a shoe in But uh, I want to I pray for him because if it's not God's will, then God, don't let him say yes, you know. Uh, I don't want him to have to go back to something that, you know, that doesn't want him or something. And, uh, and if it is God's will, then may it be, uh, uh, may it be everything that, that God needs to get done there. I don't want to say may it be easy and a smooth transaction because, you know, some of the most prettiest things come out of the roughest times, right? All children, amen. There's nothing easy about having a baby, but babies are awesome. Right? Some of the most beautiful things come out of such great pain. So whatever the Lord's will is there, I want it to be done. And uh, I want to pray for my friend there. But I want to pray for all these pastors here locally that are having successes, man, that are able to harvest where they didn't reap, right? Or maybe are sowing where others might harvest. So let's pray for them because I, if I'm going through that, I know they go through that, right? Uh, so I want to pray for that. There's no such thing as a Pentecostal heaven or a Baptist heaven or a Methodist heaven. There's no such thing. We are working towards the same goal. There are brothers and our sisters in Christ. They are sharing in the work of the field with us. Hear me. We do not have different fields from them. They don't have their field and we have their, our field. No, we might have a different section of the same field. That's why sometimes when they shovel, some of their dirt gets on us. And when we shovel, some of our dirt gets on them. And when we throw seed, some of our seed lands in their dirt because we're in the same field together. We're co-workers of the same field. Sometimes we'll sow. Sometimes they'll reap. Sometimes we'll reap and sometimes they'll sow. All is kingdom glory. All is kingdom glory. If, if I was to ever like really convey one thing that's truly my identity to you, it would be this. Jesus first. Not Mosaic Community Church. Jesus first. Jesus first. We love God and his people, not organizations. I, I, I'm not going to lie. I love the assemblies. I love the Baptist churches. I love a lot of these organizations, but I love Jesus first. I love Jesus first, and I'm for kingdom glory, not church glory. I'm for kingdom glory. I'm going to shout to the praises when people get saved. I don't care what church they go to. I just want them in church. I want them hearing the word of God. I want their life changed. I want them to help change the lives of others. Kingdom glory. We are not in a competition. We are partners in a greater global mission. We are partners with all these churches here in town. Also, number two, I want us to continue to grow intimate with Christ to allow grace to come forward and in us towards others. I want to be a church that always offers forgiveness and compassion 
uh, to all who come and go. You know, we're a small church still. We're a small church because we've chosen to do some things that are different from other churches. We're not really big on advertising. I'm not. I'm just not. I want to pray. I really want to test the grounds of prayer more than test the grounds of advertising. That's just me. Maybe I'll come to that place where I'm like, okay, we're going to lighten the load a little bit and maybe do a little bit of advertising and things like that. But for right now, that's where I'm still at, and I'm still praying through some of that uh, because I'm believing that God sees us. He sees what we're doing, and if we'll be faithful, that God will answer. I believe that. I believe that. I was taught to believe that. I was discipled to believe that by the church, right? So I want to I believe that. Uh, we'll, rec- we'll correct when we need to. You know, there's always going to be a second chance this year. We'll correct when we need to, but we'll do so in a way that expresses the love of Christ towards anyone and everyone. We want to be a church like the Colossians. We want to be known for our love of God, and we, we want to be known for our love of people. Them too. Right? You know, we even got a big plastic sign out there that says, thank you for coming and everything. There's, there's no win in that thing. It's just going to be how it is. So we should tell Janet about all the people that come, right? You know, it's like, you could make some money on Sunday. I mean, I know you're not into that, but, but <laughs> yeah. um, that's where my heart is. My heart is. I, I, there's some things that I'm wanting to do. I know we're going to be partnering around October with Chick-fil-A and some other things, but uh, Kyle's been on me lately about a, 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 about a uh, seven project, and I don't think we'll do one this year, but I sure would like to do another one. It's been a long time, and people have forgotten that we were already, which is strange to me. I think it's been since 2015 is the last one. People have already forgotten that we've actually stood together before. And there's a whole generation of kids that's never seen it again now. That's just weird, right? 2014, okay. So 2014, we did a seven project. What that is, is is we go into the schools and we evangelize in the schools and bring an organization in to do it. Um, we unite all the churches together, and that'll be some groundwork that we'll have to do. We've had a lot of change and stuff, but I'd like to do one again. And uh, and I want to work on some partnerships where we can get some of this done and have some other uh, churches involved. And, and uh, I want our hearts to start shifting to that because, I, again, this is, this is a kingdom stuff kingdom stuff. And uh, we might be small, but we're pretty powerful. I don't know if you realize that. We're pretty powerful. I mean, I've, I've been keeping a journal ever since the first of the year of prayers we're praying and the things that we're trying to get answers on, right? I'm recording on that. One of my favorite things I think is going to be able to do this year is maybe talk about some of the victories that we've had by the end of the year. I think it's awesome. God's doing some amazing things. You might not be keeping up with it, but I am. I am. I'm keeping a record. God's got a reputation too, you know. And uh, I'm sure he aims to keep it a whole lot more than I aim to keep mine. Let's uh, worship this morning. And, and uh, yeah, yeah, let's worship this morning.